Well, we've been on a bit of an extended break from the Gospel of John, so I asked you to kind of get your shift your minds back in into John this morning. Uh, Peter picked up the last two messages on the glory of Christ and the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And now we come finally to the last chapter and the last sermon, for this time anyway, on John's Gospel. When I think about uh, the theme of John, the glory of Christ, it makes me think about our own, as Presbyterians, Puritan kind of foundations. When I think about the Puritans, I don't know how much you know about the Puritans um, from England, but they were on a quest to to do all life to the glory of God. When we look at the history of the church in the Middle Ages, uh, there came a time of great and mass corruption in the church and in doctrine. And so men like Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin and others like them, uh, when they rediscovered the word of God, they had access to the Greek and Hebrew Uh, original languages, and they were able to rediscover the manuscripts of the Bible in those original languages. And they realized this great perversion that had swept across the church in, in practice and in doctrine. They sought to reform the church to the Word, and that's where the Reformation uh, began. But the Puritans who come in the 17th century in England were trying to do the same thing there as was happening in Germany and and other places. And they sought to do all life to the glory of God. And uh, these um, ancestors of ours, spiritual ancestors, I should say, um, laid the foundation for our own Presbyterian faith today. And we can see that very clearly, for example, in the Shorter Catechism, question one, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And of course, they take that from the Bible, places like 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that was their quest. So that every, every pastor, every farmer, every mother, every man, woman, child in this movement was striving to do all life to the glory of God. And as we turn to this last chapter of John, we see that very same theme. And that's what we're going to focus on today, as I've titled the sermon, Called to a Life That Glorifies Christ. As uh, I've included the structure of John and the inside cover of the bullet, back uh, cover of the bulletin, you've seen how John has structured his whole gospel on this concept of glory. In the prologue, John writes, And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And then in the first major section of John, 
It's all about the signs of glory. And Jesus manifested his first sign of glory in Cana, turning water into wine. And John says, this was the first time, the first sign where he manifested his glory. And we see just countless signs of glory in that section. And then we come to the third part of John in the second major section. It's about the hour of glory, the hour that Jesus was building up to his, his death his crucifixion, and his resurrection, the hour of glory. And now John gives us this last chapter, which forms an epilogue. So we have basically a four-part structure to John with a prologue and an epilogue, and then these two major parts in between. And in this last section, I'm going to argue today, he is focusing on the so what. You've, you believe in Jesus so what? Or now what? What does that mean for your life? And he's going to shift from the focus of the glory of Christ and how Jesus uh, revealed his glory in his incarnation to now how will we glorify Jesus in our lives? So it's really, I'm going to argue, a chapter that has been placed here for a grand application as John closes the gospel and he uses Peter's restoration to ministry as a prime illustration of that call of what it looks like to glorify God and glorify Christ specifically. So that's what we're going to look at uh, this this morning. And But one more thing I want to say before we do that in John. Recall, I said this in the first sermon on John. John uses the, the glory word group 42 times in this gospel. So that averages to, to two occasions per chapter. The other three gospels combined only use the glory word group 31 times together. So that, that really illustrates that John is really focusing on this concept of glory and that we also see glory and discipleship tied together very closely on four occasions in John's gospel. Uh, so John uh, records Jesus' words, in, for example, in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And again, in the high priestly prayer, he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And we will see in a bit here in chapter 21, regarding Peter, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So the relationship between discipleship and glory is is very important in that, Our following Jesus is the way that we glorify Jesus. And that's what we're going to see by way of the illustration of these disciples this morning. So I'm going to argue this morning that each one of us is called to a life that glorifies God. Each one of us is called, whether whether you're an adult or whether you're a child, We're called to glorify God in the way we act and think and talk with the priorities in our lives and how we choose to spend our days on earth. We're all called 
to live a life that glorifies Christ. So we'll look at this in three parts this morning. Uh, And I want to, before we get that, just remind you that this chapter 21 is flowing out of John's concluding statement last week, or his purpose statement for the whole book, that now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So now we get, so you, so let's say you believe now, so what does it mean now to follow Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So point number one, the first thing we'll look at, point number one, the glory of Christ is magnified by our natural weaknesses. The glory of Christ is magnified by our natural weaknesses. How many of God's people have said, why me? I think really specifically of Moses. Lord, why would you choose me? I'm slow of speech. He's, so basically, Moses like, I'm a terrible public speaker. Why would you choose me? And time and time again, God chooses very fallen people to magnify his own glory. And I think, I know I can identify with that. I'm sure that you can as well. And as we come to these opening verses of 21, of chapter 21, we see that there isn't much going on for the disciples right now. They're not bearing much fruit. We see, starting in verse 1, John says, After Jesus was revealed, um, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And so seven of the disciples are gathered around, and what do they do? They decide to go fishing, uh, which is their old vocation. I mean, they do need to make a living somehow, so they decide to go back and go fishing. But how are they doing with their fishing? Not so good. They're, they're not catching anything. John says uh, that they were up all night. They went out in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. The disciples were more or less fruitless. But then we see Jesus come into the picture, and Jesus makes all the difference. He appears on the shore and said, Children, do you have any fish? I just love the way Jesus plays with his disciples sometimes. Uh, Hey, do you have any fish? No, they answered him. These guys are professional fishermen. No, they don't got any fish. So he says, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And they do, and they catch so many fish they can't even haul it in 153 in total and john always uh the smart one i think of the bunch leans over to peter and says john it's the lord and peter always the zealous one who maybe acts more than he thinks puts his robe on and just jumps in the water and swims, swims for the shore. And the rest of the, the other six come with greater decorum on the boat, coming back, coming back in. But they know it's the Lord. They're too embarrassed to ask him if it is him. They know it's him. And uh, Jesus already has breakfast prepared with fish and bread. 
And what we see here in these opening verses is that our success as disciples is entirely dependent on grace. Our success as disciples is entirely dependent on grace. The disciples beheld these amazing miracles during Jesus's time on earth of turning water into wine, of raising the dead, of raising himself from the dead. They beheld amazing miracles. And you would think that, you know, if we were those disciples that were there, we might kind of think, hey, we're kind of big stuff now. You know, we, we were, we're the chosen ones, right? We're the disciples, so uh, we must be pretty special people. As soon as Jesus goes away, the disciples return to their fruitless ways. They, they, they could do nothing on their own. And in fact, the, the, even the great commission that Jesus is going to send his disciples out on could not ever possibly happen without the Lord pouring the Spirit out. On his people. And so as we think about our Christian lives, it is based entirely on grace. For example, we are saved by grace alone. Think of Paul's words in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or closer to home in, in John's gospel, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Salvation is a gift. It's entirely dependent on grace. How about the, the gifts and the skills we have to serve one another? Are those just natural things we come by? No, even that is completely Grace. We've been given spiritual gifts by grace. Peter, you know, who's going to be taught a big lesson in this chapter. Peter says in his first letter, in 1 Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We've each received a gift, even our, our gifts and callings in this world are not things that we come by naturally. They're things that the Lord has graciously given to us. Our success is entirely dependent on grace. And how about the establishment of our work? Do you ever think or worry that the stuff you're doing is not going to last? Or what's the point? Even the hope that the work we do for the Lord uh, will have some kind of eternal use is also entirely dependent upon grace. Again, Peter, the focus of this chapter says in his first letter in 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Or Paul says a very similar thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So our salvation, our gifts for life and ministry, 
as well as the hope that the stuff we do on earth will have some kind of lasting significance, even eternal significance, is entirely dependent on grace. And we see this wonderfully illustrated by fruitless fishermen who can't catch any fish until Jesus gives it to them. And I hope that's an encouragement to you as you think about your life and your calling that you've received from God. That if you depend on Jesus for grace, not only will he save you, not only will he enable you to bear fruit in life and in ministry, but also the things that you do in the Lord will last for all eternity. And that's all because of the grace of Jesus. And because it's by his grace, it all serves for his glory and not ours. So if we want to be fishers of men, like Jesus made of his original 12, we must look to Jesus to give the fish. And in this way, he gets the glory. So that's the first point the glory of Christ is magnified by our natural weaknesses. Now a second point. Peter's restoration to ministry exemplifies what glorifying Jesus looks like. I'll say that again. Peter's restoration to ministry exemplifies what glorifying Jesus looks like. Peter, in other words, Peter uh, uh, has a very specific restoration in ministry that's different from our, our uh, calls to life in ministry. Uh, Peter did become the apostle to the Jews. He has a very specific restoration because of uh, some very specific denying of Jesus that Peter did. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I also argue that John is using Peter to illustrate for us also what glorifying Jesus looks like. So as we look at this point of Peter's restoration and ministry, exemplifies what glorifying to Jesus looks like. We see, starting in verse 15 and, and to 19, we see Peter getting restored to ministry. As you may recall in this gospel, as well as what we know from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Peter's pride got the best of him. No doubt, his pride got uh, the best of him. You remember uh, in John 13, when Jesus is having supper with the disciples and washing their feet, and Jesus talks about how he's going to lay his life down for the disciples. And that where Jesus says where he's going, they can't go. And Peter says, always one to talk before thinking, Lord, why can't I not follow you? I will lay my life down for you. Uh, Matthew records him going even further, where Peter says, though they all fall away, pointing to the other disciples. Though they all, though all y'all fall away. That's a little bit of the southern from where I came, was sent from. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's what Peter says. He's looking all of a sudden, hey, these, these chums might fall away, but I won't. Well, what does Jesus say in response to that in John thirteen thirty eight, 
Jesus answered, Will you lay your life down for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And we know as it's recorded in John 18, Peter denies Jesus three times. You know, Peter kind of experienced that thing that maybe some of us have experienced in life when we're here gathered together in church, we feel really courageous and confident. But then you go out in the world or in the workplace and your faith is challenged and you just keep quiet. Or you just kind of fudge on your response to whatever's going on. I mean, that's Peter's. We're not that far from Peter. And so Peter, as as glad as he is to see the Lord, I'm sure also feels and has that in the back of his mind, that great elephant in the room that nobody's talking about. How does Jesus really think about me? What's he really thinking? And after they finish breakfast, uh, Jesus confronts Peter and restores him, but restores him in kind of a rebuking, way as well when he asks him three times the same question uh, most assuredly because of Peter's threefold rejection of the Lord and in verse 15 John writes when they had finished breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these almost put in parentheses you know these chums you thought You'd be better then. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And then Jesus repeats the question a second time. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. And then Jesus repeats it a third time. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I think that's a wonderful, tender moment. Because each one of us can stand in Peter's shoes and know the times we've failed Jesus. But at the same time, know that in our heart of hearts, we do love Jesus. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then he goes on. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And as we, we, we've, I think, can very empathetically stand with Peter and know how awkward this must have been for him, as Jesus confronted him, and yet also encouraging because Jesus is restoring him. We find in Peter, and Peter's call, a model for each one of us, don't we? Both as sheep and as shepherds. 
first of all, we find in this call a model for love for Jesus. That if we are to follow Jesus, we must love him. And that's a huge theme and a huge part of discipleship. In John 14, Jesus said to the disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that commandment is also expressed not just vertically in like a a verbal or mental assent that we love Jesus, but it's also expressed in our love for one another. And Jesus says in John 15, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. So even in, in Peter's call to feed the sheep, that is the grand expression of love for Jesus. Do you love me? If you say yes, then feed my sheep, tend my flock, care for my flock. That actually was also the great sin in uh, Ephesus, in Revelation chapter 2, when uh, uh, there are letters for seven of the churches in Asia Minor. In Ephesus, it is written, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You abandoned the love that you had at first, no doubt speaking both of their love for the Lord and for one another. Probably a church that has grown proud in its own gift, maybe a church like Corinth that becomes very proud of itself. And when they come and gather on the Lord's Day, they don't really care about anybody else. They're coming to display their own gifts or skills or talents or how wonderful they are, just as we can see as the Church of Corinth did as well, time and time again. That was the, Paul's church plant from hell is Corinth. Just uh, They really struggled with that. And Ephesus did as well by the time that John wrote the book of Revelation. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So we can see in Peter's call a reminder that if we love Jesus, we will also love his people and feed and tend his flock. And that's a call both, not just for shepherds. So Peter certainly is unique in the sense that he's going to be the apostle to the Jews. The Lord's going to use him to write letters that will be enshrined in the New Testament as the infallible inspired word of God. That's unique to Peter. That's not something that we do. But there is still a call that is applied to us as shepherds and as sheep and as the flock of God. And I'll give you some illustrations of that. For example, when Paul exhorted the elders in Acts 20, he told them to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock that the, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So this is a call for people like myself and for Peter as one of our elders. Do you love Jesus? Feed the flock. Care for the flock. That's the call for us. Peter himself says the same thing in his first letter to the elders. He says, shepherd the flock that is among you. So that's a grand call for, for shepherds. But how about the rest of us? 
Well, Peter says the same thing. We actually all participate in caring for the flock as the people of God. In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So this relationship of love and caring for the flock is not just something for a few people specifically called. It's, it's a call for the whole body. And as you look at the greater New Testament, you see exhortations for the older women to teach the younger women. You see exhortations to husbands to wash their wives with the word of God, with the cleansing of the word of God. There's, there's uh, for example, when we sing, Paul, Paul says in Colossians 3, teach and admonish one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And that's the way the word of, the, of, word of Christ dwells richly in us. So we all have a call to care and shepherd the flock. And if we love the Lord, if our confession is true, then we will care for one another. We will feed one another. We will encourage each other. So in Peter's call, we see a model for love for Jesus, uh, a model to feed the sheep, but also a model for a death that glorifies Christ a death that glorifies Christ. Cross-bearing is at the heart of discipleship. Cross-bearing is at the heart of discipleship. In John 12, Jesus said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. He told his disciples in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Cross-bearing is at the heart of following Jesus. And all of us in a spiritual way are called to take up that cross. But Peter, in a very specific and literal way, did that as his martyrdom is recorded. He was crucified upside down uh, by the Romans. And as, as the, the story goes, he requested to be crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to share the same death as his Lord. And for three decades, Peter lived with this. When Jesus said, "One, you know, when you're young, you clothe yourself and went where you want to go. But when you're old, someone else will clothe you and carry you where you don't want to go. And John says, Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify the Lord. But each one of us in our call to follow Jesus in our life and in our death, we are cross-bearers. And we do it for the glory of the Lord. Peter had just these words that Jesus spoke to, to him here in John 21, I'm sure stayed with Peter for the rest of his life. And it forms so much of his thinking as he writes to the churches that the Lord sent him to plant. 
Uh, and in First Peter 4.12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter uh, remembered the message and the lesson that the Lord taught him. That when we follow Jesus in suffering and even to death for his name's sake, we do it for his glory. And even as Peter was restored by Jesus, Peter uses that same language encouraging the church. When he says in 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Even Peter himself is applying this lesson given to him to the church at Broad. So in Peter's call, we find a model for love for Jesus, a model to feed the sheep and to live a life and a death that glorifies Christ. And I was studying some uh, older commentaries on this passage this week, um, one stood out by a gentleman by the name of Niels Hemmingson, who lived from 1513 to 1600. And he was a Danish Lutheran theologian, a Danish Lutheran theologian, Niels Hemmingson. And he just made this marvelous statement on this passage. And I've included it in the, in the worship folder for you um, on the inside uh, front cover. And I want to feel, you can feel free to read along with me, but I want to read that to you uh, from Niels Hemmingsen, Danish Lutheran theologian. And he wrote of this passage, As sheep follow their own shepherd wherever the shepherd goes, so must the godly follow Christ in life, in persecution, and in glory, beholding their life as a rule for them to live by, bearing their cross through patience as often as need requires, and afterward becoming partakers of his glory, whose companions they had been in persecution. As Paul says, if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. Hereby, therefore, may the godly ministers of the word learn to feed Christ's flock, and let the sheep be meek, let them hear the voice of their shepherd only and let them follow him in life, in the cross, and in glory. I love reading ancient and old words that are saying the same thing that we need to hear today when they meditate on the same scriptures together. So as shepherds and sheep, may we follow the Lord in life and in persecution and in death for his glory. So I've shown you in the second point that Peter's restoration of ministry exemplifies what glorifying Jesus looks like. 
Now, a third and final point. Glorifying Christ means focusing on our own calling. Glorifying Christ means focusing on our own calling. Right after Jesus talks about Peter's death, I think somewhat understandably, Peter turns, as we read in verse 20, as John writes, Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following him, that is John, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw, so when Peter sees John, after Jesus just told Peter, this is how you're going to die, Peter's like, well, hey, what about John? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Apparently there is some kind of rumor going around that John would be alive till uh, the Lord returned, though John denies that that's what the Lord said in the following verses. But Peter really wanted to know, well, is John, is he going to suffer as much as I'm going to suffer? And when he says that, I think he says something that's very uh, common among all of us, that when we're having a hard time, we feel a lot better if we know that other people are having a hard time too. You know, like, uh, you know, we, we somehow strangely feel better if we, if we know uh, why someone else is suffering or if they're suffering at least as much as we're suffering. And we also, I think this also speaks to uh, a common theme that we kind of want to know uh, everyone else's story. You know, it's really easy to be, be jealous of others, to be covetous of others, to kind of get distracted what we're supposed to do by focusing on if other people are doing what they're supposed to do or uh, having some kind of assurance that they're going to they're going to pull as much weight as you are in the ministry or in life or whatever's going on. We, as people, tend to kind of want to look around at others and compare ourselves to others and want to know their stories. We want to know, our th- is everything fair? Uh, is there, are we all getting an equal amount of suffering or an equal amount of success? All this kind of stuff that's kind of just in our nature. And Peter wants to know about John. And to kind of paraphrase... Jesus says, stop worrying about him. Just follow me. Focus on what you're supposed to be doing. What is that to you? It's not your business. It's not your business. And we as disciples can often get sidetracked when we get fixated on other people and not doing what we're called to do. The world has a tendency to want to keep up with the Joneses. That's, at least that's the American idiom. I don't know what the Norwegian idiom would be. Keep up with Ula? I don't, I don't know. Um, but uh, keep up with the Joneses uh, is what Deborah just gave me a look. <laughs> keep up with the Johnsons? Did you say? <laughs> but anyways, you know, we kind of want to just keep up with everyone. But Jesus is essentially saying, put some horse blinders on. Stay in your lane. He's not saying don't be concerned about other people. Don't love other people. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying don't worry about their story. 
We each have our own story. And John concludes the gospel with this lesson that while we're each called to glorify God, and while we each have very unique callings in the sense of we're to love one another, we're to care for the flock, and so on and so forth, it's going to look differently in each one of our lives. We're each going to have a different and unique story. I mean, look around. We all come from very different places, most of us. We each have a unique and different story. And the Lord's brought us here to one place, but we all have very different backgrounds. We have very different testimonies. We have often very different ways we came to the Lord. We have some of our struggles are the same, and some of ours are very different. We each have a story and a calling that's individual to us. And what's unique is we're all called to glorify the Lord. But each one of us in following Jesus needs to focus on our own calling. So we've seen three things this morning. The glory of Christ is magnified by our natural weaknesses. We've seen that Peter's restoration to ministry exemplifies what glorifying Jesus looks like. And we've seen that glorifying Christ means focusing on our own calling. We're all going to have different lives and different deaths and different sufferings and different successes. But if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will live and die for his glory. So in conclusion, we've seen this morning... John's focus on the glory of Christ in the gospel and in this last message, which is also our, as, as a Presbyterian church, it's our chief end too, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, that Puritan quest to live all life to the glory of God. I pray that that is our quest as God's people, that we live all life, our work, our vocations, our callings, our families, our aspirations, would we would strive to all be to the glory of God. John's clearly laid out in this gospel the purpose of the gospel, of revealing the glory of Christ, is so that we would believe in him and have life in his name. But it doesn't stop there, as we see here in chapter 21. We are each called to live a life that glorifies Christ. And... By way of conclusion, I want to zero in on the last thing that John says in the gospel. When he says in verse 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And when we think about Jesus' ongoing ministry today and the lives of each one of us, and of his people, whether it, whether it was uh, Niels Hemingson, who I read from, from the 16th century, or anyone else in time, that is the Lord's. When we look at all of the things that the Lord has done in each one of our lives to show his glory, the entire cosmos could not contain the books that are written. So each one of us has a call to glorify the Lord, That's a common call, but it will look differently for each one of us. And with that said, I charge you, brothers and sisters, that you will endeavor with all of your might in all ways to glorify God 
and to enjoy him forever. Let's pray.